All right, welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. We have uh, an amazing guest today. His name is uh, Jeff Chilton. He is the president of Namex, which makes organic mushroom extracts. He has studied ethnomycology. He's gone on trips to China. He's been involved in farming large amounts of medicinal mushrooms. I think you were saying something like 2 million pounds in one year. Uh, Just a lot of really amazing things. So today we're talking about mushrooms again because mushrooms are an excellent topic. So welcome to the show. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started in this medicinal path? Oh yeah, sure. You know, you know, you're you're in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and we have the most perfect climate in the world for wild mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So, growing up in Seattle, I had mushrooms all around me, and and I got out to to do some mushroom hunting uh, when I was younger with parents of friends, and I quite enjoyed it. You know, hunting for mushrooms is like a treasure hunt. Oh, mm-hmm. Don, it's amazing. You're out there in the woods. I mean, you know mm-hmm. what it's like in the woods in the Northwest. It's fantastic. And, and uh, you find the mushrooms and it's like treasure, a treasure hunt. I, I liked it enough that when I went to university in the late 60s, uh, I was studying anthropology, but they had a great mycology department. Mycology is the study of fungi. So I took mycology courses, anthropology. I put the two together and ended up studying the use of mushrooms worldwide for food, for medicine, and for shamanic purposes. And and I just loved it all. I just loved learning about other cultures and how they did things. And and so that was sort of my background at university. And then then in, in when I got out of university and realized there was no jobs in anthropology, mm-hmm. I, I talked to my mycology prof and he said, hey, look, there's a mushroom farm in Olympia. Why don't you go down there and apply for a job? And I went, wow, that just sounds so cool. So I went down there. I applied for a job. I got a job. I was at that farm for the next 10 years. So for 10 years, I lived with mushrooms. Mm. That must have been an amazing 10 years. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, I really... There's something kind of beautiful about hunting in the wild for mushrooms. Um, A few months ago, I went with my parents and we kind of were walking around. We had like a little guide. So we were like looking at which specific mushrooms we could pick (laughs) and which ones we couldn't. Uh, We found a lot of, uh, I think they're called King Bolette mushrooms. They're like, wow, you found King Bolette. Yeah, a bunch of them, like pounds and pounds of them. Like my dad found this gigantic one that was like this big. It was it was incredible and it was just so much fun. Um, it's a it, it's a really interesting form of medicine because it kind of um, it grows in such an interesting environment. It gets you out in nature and, and all that. So absolutely, absolutely, no, it's, it's really fun and fascinating and uh, and rewarding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned, and this is something we were uh, talking about a little bit before, but the shamanic uses of mushrooms. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different traditions that have used uh, uh, mushroom medicines in a more religious, spiritual type of way? Sure. You, you know, <clears throat> in, in, the, in the 1950s, 
there was a New York banker who had a Russian wife. His name was Gordon Lawson. And they traveled around the world and were writing about mushrooms. He didn't know a lot, but she did. Mm -hmm. And in their travels, uh, looking at mushrooms, they came across uh, somebody that told them, hey, in the mountains of Mexico, there are still indigenous people mm. using mushrooms in their healing ceremonies. He then took a French mycologist with him. They went to Mexico, deep into southern Mexico in the state of Oaxaca, and visited a number of villages down there and went down for the next five years and they spent every summer down there because that's the rainy season and that's when the mushrooms grow mm -hmm. and they cataloged a whole probably at least 12 different species of psilocybe mushroom that were growing wild in the mountains of southern Mexico and while they were there they encountered a number of native healers that were using mushrooms in their healing ceremonies. One of them was a, a woman called Maria Sabina. Mm -hmm. and Maria Sabina was a curandera uh, of the Mazatec group. And she actually allowed them to, 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 see one of her ceremonies and they also took mushrooms themselves on a number of occasions and so because of those five years they brought back this information about the ongoing use of mushrooms in southern and and, and look at that point in time nobody in the world knew that this was still going on, mm -hmm. that there was still people somewhere in the world that were using, they knew about um, the fact of, of people using them in Siberia and, and ultimately um, Gordon Lawson, the man there discovered and, and wrote a whole book about the fact of a mushroom at the very center of the Hindu religion. Mm -hmm. Because the Hindu religion had a, a uh, substance that they called soma. And, and for hundreds of years, nobody knew what soma was. And, and this was a big question for a lot of classical scholars mm -hmm. because they'd lost the, the formula, so to speak, for this soma which was such a part of Hinduism. And then in 1968, he, after gathering a lot of information, wrote a book called Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality. Mm. Think That's about that for a minute. Title. Yeah, and, and not only that, getting back to mm. his, his uh, trips to Mexico, in 1957, there, there. At that point in time, there's a magazine in the United States called Life Magazine, mm -hmm. and it's a big, uh, colorful, mainstream magazine. They published an article 
article he wrote. And even on the cover of this magazine, they said, um, great adventures, mushrooms that cause visions discovered in Mexico. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Can you imagine? Yeah, this Today, is way before prohibition of, of those kind of things. Before, yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Way before the 60s when all of a sudden it kind of blew up. But this was a mainstream magazine. And, and this was just kind of like, isn't this interesting? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, amazing discovery, you know? That amazing discovery. So you open it up, and here are photos from Mexico. There's photos of Maria Sabina, the healer. There are photos of Gordon Wasson and his French mycologist. There are watercolors of the different mushrooms that they found. And ultimately, um, Wasson and... Roger M., who was the mycologist, wrote a two-volume book, very large book, with watercolors, with photographs, with everything. Only 500 copies printed and printed by old Italian printers on special paper. It was uh, in a in a, a, a a cardboard uh, uh, case, you couldn't, I mean, four, 500 copies. Think about that for a minute, 500 copies of this. I, I learned about this and I had to view this book in the rare book room of the university library. And when you went in, you checked in, you signed in, and then you'd sit down and they would go up on the shelf and pull this thing off the shelf and bring it down, and you had to stay right there. You could not <laughs> photocopy, you could not take it anywhere, you could take notes, but that was it. So for me, as part of my studies, I would go into the rare book room and I would get into this two-volume, and it was just beautiful learning about what he had learned about the use of these mushrooms in Mexico and in Siberia. In Siberia, they use the Amanita muscaria, mm. which is the red-capped mushroom with the white specks on it. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so at that time, there was just all of a sudden, and, and at this point in time, this is into the 60s now, in when I'm in university and I'm discovering all of this, and all of a sudden the knowledge of that is starting to to filter out into the society mm -hmm. and and what happens then is that hundreds if not thousands of young people my generation start to go to mexico and go back into the mountains looking for these mushrooms and looking for the mushroom experience mm, that's that's beautiful and um of course there was that kind of uh, boom of interest. It was almost like, you know, we discovered something in space, like some new world to explore. And then there was that crackdown of the war on drugs and making um, things like psilocybin a very high schedule. I think they might even be scheduled. Schedule one. Yeah. So schedule that's the one, highest yeah. uh, type <laughs> yes. of. Uh, it's right there schedule. with opiates, heroin, right. and you name right. it. And they, they put all of them. I think they even put uh, marijuana onto schedule one. But yeah. But all those types of uh, 
whether it be a natural substance like uh, mm. a pot or like the mushrooms or whether it was LSD that was a synthetic, um, mm. there was a, a crackdown. But, but you know, you talk about, yeah, something like going out into space or something. Well, this was an exploration of inner space. Exactly. And yeah. an exploration of consciousness. So this was a very, uh, very broad-based mm. and, and expansive movement of people that mm. were exploring consciousness and the government of the time and the population uh, at the time parents for example they were completely clueless about this and afraid and so the government was it was very easy for the government to step in and regulate and begin the prohibition which essentially mm-hmm. has lasted to this day, or certainly until recently with pot, where the prohibition has been lifted, but we still have prohibition of these medicinal plants, whether it is mushrooms or peyote or ayahuasca or any of these different natural products, we still have prohibition of them and they're still illegal and you can still get arrested and put in jail. Mm. Why do you think there was such a sudden kind of prohibition of these, which these substances have been used medicinally for a long time by various cultures? And at first it seemed like everyone was very excited about it, but then it became, you know, something very illegal, something that could make, you know, make you jump out of a window and all these kind of propaganda things. Something I always think about, why do you think that happens? Why did that prohibition really happen? Well, well, remember this, the, the original prohibition started in 1937. Mm. In 1937, the United States uh, prohibited uh, marijuana mm. uh, and also pre- uh, prohibited opium and a number of other uh, types of, uh, whether it be drug products or, because before that, they'd all been illegal. I mean, all been legal. Mm-hmm. Um but they brought in a prohibition and the United States took it worldwide mm. and, and, and made it so that other countries, they went through the United Nations and other countries so that they prohibited it in all these other countries. Um, so that pro- prohibition was in place, but it wasn't until really the um, 60s when all of a sudden things like uh, uh, peyote and uh, mushrooms and LSD popped up in a way that came to their attention in a major way. And, you know, Look, uh, governments have felt that these uh, plants and these substances, they've felt uh, threatened by them for thousands of years because we're not talking about necessarily just a, uh, a prohibition that started right away. The fact is, is with the, these mushrooms and their uses, because here it is, if, if uh, you find out that these mushrooms are the basis of certain major religions, the last thing that they want to do is to, you know, they suppressed this 2,000 years ago. They suppressed the use of mushrooms in major religions because not only did Gordon Wasson come out in 1968 with his book Soma, at the same time, a uh, Dead Sea Scrolls linguist and scholar named John Allegro had been put on the a team in the 50s to to translate the recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he was one of the few linguists that actually could could read this well. And he was a 
a very high-end scholar. And in 1968, after looking at these Dead Sea Scrolls, he comes out and writes a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, which essentially says, look, early Christianity and a lot of these early religions were based around a mushroom. Not only that, I mean, all of those cults were also originally fertility cults. Mm. So there was also sex involved. Holy smokes. Sex, drugs. What's next? Rock and roll. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so this was just like absolutely untenable for governments because, again, they'd been suppressing this for years and years and years. So the same year that Gordon Wasson comes out with his uh, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, we have a book that says, oh, not only is this mushroom at the root of Hinduism, it's at the root of Christianity. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, anyway, it didn't go over very well, uh, but it kind of let the genie out of the bottom and, and bottle. And, and actually, if you, if you go out, because now people have started to really look, they have found mushrooms in stained glass windows of churches in Europe. They've found frescoes with mushrooms. You know, once you start looking, you find them in buildings, in writings, historically and prehistorically in stone paintings around the world. So all of a sudden we have mushrooms like, okay, how come we didn't know about this? Well, because thousands of years ago, they actually were suppressed and prohibited. Mm. So, so this is nothing new. I think there's, I just kind of had an insight as you were talking of why that might've happened, why even back then they were suppressed. And I think it has to do with the way that religious institutions got power over people. So the way that they got power over people is you basically, you need to go through the priest to get to God. And the priest is the only way to God. But with um, entheogenic mushrooms and that, you don't need a priest. In fact, that could actually be detrimental to you finding what you can find. And it's more of an individual connection with divinity. And of course, people were having these experiences and waking up in all sorts of ways and then probably becoming political dissidents. So they were like, this is not good. And then there was also, I don't know if you're familiar with the experiments that the CIA did with uh, LSD. MK, MK, MK Ultra. Right. So they were testing LSD on people to see, you know, is this like a truth serum? Uh, what could it be used for? You know, can we, uh, you know, in a lot someone's of cases, mind down? And without even telling them either what was going on. I mean, that was that was part of what was happening as well. So, but no, your point is well taken because that's exactly yeah. what happened is that is that when it comes to mm -hmm. religion, it is a way to control population. So the, mm -hmm. the religions are working hand in hand with government to control people. And the last thing they want is somebody to be able to have a direct line to this other uh, consciousness and, and what was... Uh, actually the religious experience that was kind of at the basis, in my opinion, of all of these different religious ideas. But over time, what happens is that, that as you build up this separate cast of people mm -hmm. who are the organizers and it becomes 
more solidified and more ritual and all the rest, all of a sudden it's like, okay, no, we want this knowledge. We don't want you to have it. You have to go through us for any of this. And at some point they're taking these, these actual uh, plants that are giving people this, this experience. They're just taking them right out of the whole thing and, and replacing mm-hmm. them with, let's say, a wafer and wine. Mm-hmm. And it seems, uh, looking through history, that these substances were often used by these kind of elite secret groups. Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Eleusinian Mysteries. Yes, of course. Uh, so they used basically, um, what was it? It was some kind of preparation, they think, of ergot, which is uh, a mold that grows on uh, rye bread that actually is the, I believe, the precursor for LSD. So it's like yes, kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely right. There, there's a whole book on on that, The Road to Eleusis. And, and mm-hmm. this, again, is, is Gordon Wasson mm-hmm. and Albert Hofmann, who discovered LSD. Yeah. But you know what? I, I My personal thing is, I don't actually agree with them on the whole ergot thesis. Mm-hmm. To me, there's there's too much too much um, um, actual, um, I would say, information and and other um, keys to the fact that I, I think they were using mushrooms in that ceremony, and I think that was really what they were using at the Lucis. Because you know, again, it's it's too simple. I mean, you know, you've got these mushrooms. It's very simple. You don't have to go to try. I mean, nobody today, if, if it were such a wonderful thing. Wouldn't people today be trying to go, okay, where's the formula for this? Let me get that air got. Let me try and, you know, create this compound. Nobody's doing that today. I mean, why would they be doing it back then? You know, and, right. and air got, air got, for goodness sakes. It's, very yeah, it's pretty poisonous. Yeah, it, it is. So, <laughs> so, so to me, I, I did not subscribe to that. And I thought that was a real stretch. Mm. And I still do. And I, I don't subscribe to that theory at all. I think it's very simple to just say, look, no, we're talking about mushrooms here. Even, even the fact of, um, of Wasson's theory of a Soma being necessarily Amanita muscaria, mm-hmm. my own feeling on that is it, it, it could have been, it could have been one of the things there. But I mean, look, if you look at a Hinduist iconography and if you look at the figures, they have a god called Krishna. And this god Krishna is purple. He has oftentimes is shown with a golden umbrella. Mm. (laughs) Not only that, um, in India, why are cows sacred? Well, Thylosabi mm-hmm. mushrooms grow out of cow pies, directly out of them. And these cows are another one of those symbols that you see oftentimes with this purple god. Mm. You know, so to me, it's pretty clear that they were very aware of psilocybe mushrooms. And I suspect that that is a more likely candidate for. Soma and mm. Amadita muscaria, although it could have been both at different times. But where did a sacred cow come from? Yeah, I was just reading about that, and uh, because they were talking about some cow that had done something wrong, and it said there were, I think they estimated 100 and 
93, I'm not sure whether it was million or some unbelievable number of cows roaming around India that you, you can't kill or do it because they're sacred beasts. I think there's an undeniable amount of uh, evidence that um, sacred medicines, especially mushrooms, have been used for thousands of years by all sorts of cultures and peoples looking for some kind of religious experience. I mean, it's really undeniable, especially um, the point you made about it being used in Christian cults earlier on is very interesting. Uh, most people don't know that, but you can actually look up these paintings where there's like a, like a picture of Jesus and like, yeah. or some like saint. And there's just like a Amanita muscaria, like a red mushroom with like dots on it, like swirling around the background. You're like, this is from like 300 AD. Like what, what's up with that? Like, why were well, they putting mushrooms in their paintings? And one well, of the that's famous, probably why. yeah. One of the famous icons that was actually in uh, um, Gordon Wasson's book, Soma was a, a, wall fresco in a, a church in France, and it shows the, the Amanita, very definitely an Amanita, with sort of mushrooms growing out of it, and on one side is Adam, and on one side is Eve, and they've got the snake going up it. Wow, well, yeah. you know what? Think about that for a second. I mean, forbidden fruit and all yeah. the rest, I mean, and the tree of knowledge and all of these things in it. So if you look at all of the, the mythology and the history mm. of it, and when you start to look at it from a different perspective, where you put the mushroom in there, a lot of things fall into place and, and make a lot more sense than the standard, straight, biblical um, interpretations. Right. Absolutely. So we've talked a good amount about uh, the sacred entheogenic mushrooms. So now let's kind of change up gears and talk about the wider world of medicinal mushrooms in general. So sure. on that note, what are some of your favorite medicinal mushrooms and why? Well, you know what? I, I, the one mushroom that, that I take every day in my coffee uh, is reishi. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have, uh, you know, one of the things that we sell is a reishi extract. And so I take that extract, take it in, put it in my coffee every morning. Um, you know, reishi is, is a very bitter mushroom. It's also a beautiful, beautiful red mushroom with a a perfectly formed oftentimes shape of a ram's horn and, and so it's really interesting and and it has it reishi mushroom is very bitter and, and so for me it fits right in with my black coffee in the morning i like a dark roast uh no sugar you put the reishi in with it it just gives it another nice bitter tone um reishi has got a very high amount of beta-glucans, one of the highest for the medicinal mushrooms. And it also has these bitter compounds called triterpenoids. Mm. The triterpenoids are very good for our, our circulatory system, very good for the liver. Um, so you combine that with the immunological side of things. So it, it has the immunological beta-glucans but it also has this other group of compounds, the triterpenoids. So, so it's kind of a special mushroom, in my opinion. It's something, and, and also in China, mm -hmm. when you're over there, and, and if you've got eyes to see, you see that it's in a lot of architecture. Mm -hmm. It's in a lot of art. So they've, they've got mythologies about it. So, so all of those 
denote the fact that this is a special mushroom and they call it the mushroom of immortality. Mm-hmm. Um, we might, we might actually think about the psilocybes and the other mushrooms as the true mushrooms of immortality, but they call this the mushroom of immortality. And, and so for me, that's the kind of like the, the one that if there's like, if someone, if people say to me, well, if there's one mushroom, what would you, what should I take? Reishi for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the thing about reishi is it's not a uh, edible mushroom per se. It's edible in the sense of you can drink the tea, uh, but uh, it's woody. It's mm-hmm. hard as wood. I mean, I, I was introducing this to people back in the early 90s. I'd be walking around a trade show. I said, gee, you ever thought about putting medicinal mushrooms into your product line? And they're like, mushrooms? What are you talking about? Have you ever heard of reishi? And I'd show them this reishi mushroom. They look at it and go like, is this real? <laughs> it feels like a piece of wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is real. Uh, it's a woody mushroom. It's been dried, so it is hard, and you make it into a tea. But you know that—that's kind of what it was like in the early '90s. Is nobody had medicinal mushrooms in their product line, so trying to introduce that into the herbal world was was a major deal. I mean, there was very few herbalists at the time that really knew about mushrooms. I, I mean. One of the one of the few that, that did was a, a man named uh, Christopher Hobbs, who's a botanist, and he's written a book called Medicinal Mushrooms, published it in 1986, and, and is, is an expert on them. And so he was a great ally to have in that, that he was very much part of that botanical uh, herbal community. And so he really helped to introduce mushrooms into, into that whole kind of supplement industry. Uh, mm. But otherwise... I mean, at that point, 1990, there were no mushroom supplements at all. Mm-hmm. Period. So, mm-hmm. so trying to introduce those, and 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 you know, I started my company Namex in 1989, and that was the year that I took my first trip to China. And, and while I was growing mushrooms commercially at the big farm and during the 80s, I was reading all about medicinal mushrooms, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. I knew all about mushrooms for shamanic uses. And I knew about mushrooms as a great food, but then to learn about them having these medicinal effects was just like, wow, this is incredible. You know, so here it is, you have these three different uses, food, medicine, shamanism. I mean, it's just amazing. Mushrooms are just, just kind of amazing organism. And, and you know, China is the birthplace of mushroom cultivation. They started growing shiitake mushrooms in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. They actually have a temple back in the mountains of China. They've got a temple that's set up uh, for the man that learned how to grow shiitake mushrooms. Hmm. And a big statue of this man is the altar. <laughs> there he is. You go into the, this is a shiitake mushroom temple. It's wow. Really interesting uh and it's and it's in this really great area it's in a part of china where the major agricultural crop of that area is shiitake mushrooms Mm. so reishi is kind of your go-to what others do you like um and i guess things like lion's mane is really popular these days there's a lot of research coming out about it like regrowing uh nerves uh, then we got cordyceps, which is another Chinese 
uh, herbalist type of mushroom that's used. Um, yeah. What are some other ones and what are kind of their uh, medicinal differences, let's say, than like yeah, reishi? Yeah. Well, you know, cordyceps is really interesting. That's a weird one. Because cordyceps, it's actually called the caterpillar fungus. And, and, and they have a, a term for it in China, which means winter worm, summer grass. And what, why they, they have that term is that in the, in the fall, the caterpillar goes, okay, it's getting cold. I'm going to hibernate. It, it goes down under the ground in pastures. Uh, so it's maybe a couple inches underground. And it hibernates. And while it's hibernating, spores of cordyceps have gotten onto it, either because they were already in the ground or when it was above ground and it happened to pick up spores of cordyceps. And so while it is sleeping, these spores germinate and the the, uh, fungal mycelium gets into this caterpillar and consumes the whole thing. All that's left of this caterpillar is the outer shell. Now, come summer, when that caterpillar is supposed to emerge and fly away as a moth, because it's a type of moth, well, sorry, (laughs) it's been consumed. And so instead, it puts up a small blade-like fungus that we call cordyceps. And, And so this is where winter worm, the caterpillar, summer grass, it is like a blade of grass. People who harvest this, who wildcraft this, they are in the pastures on their hands and knees combing through the grass trying to find these. And when they find them, because all they find is this little blade-like cordyceps, they will dig it back and actually pull out that caterpillar and they're very gentle with it because they don't want to break it or anything like that because if they did it would fall down into a a lower quality category so they collect these things they wildcraft them and these cordyceps have been used in china for thousands of years um, as something for uh, lung issues and also for what's called neurasthenia which is Somebody who is fatigued, they're tired, they don't have a lot of energy, they're coming off of an illness, but they can't escape this. They're just tired. They give them cordyceps. So these are the two uses of the cordyceps. And and the wildcrafted cordyceps today uh, is sold for somewhere around $20,000, a dried kilogram. Wow. It's, 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 I think it's the most expensive herb in the world. And, 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 but here, and so who can afford to actually consume it? Nobody really, except the very rich. Today, uh, and what's happened in the last 10 years is they've learned how to grow cordyceps. Not, well, actually, they've just learned how to grow this particular one, but they've learned how to grow another species called Cordyceps militaris which has been used interchangeably, but now we can cultivate it. So we grow cordyceps now. And so, you know, like, like back in the nineties, when I was showing cordyceps to companies, they were like, caterpillars, (laughs) you you think we're going to be selling caterpillars to our customers? 
Hmm. Nobody's going to want that. They said, basically, besides, they're vegetarians. Come on. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I know. Caterpillar meat. It's not very, you know, doesn't sound very tasty. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so here we are. Now we've got just 100% cordyceps. Just that cordyceps mushroom is what we're selling now at a price that everybody can afford. Mm. And, and it's, it's fantastic. It is a, a great the way, way people use it now, really, in the West is they use it for athletics, for uh, mm-hmm. kind of performance in that sense. Um, it's also known to kind of give you a little bit better oxygen utilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've seen so, that research. Yeah, yeah so, so cordyceps, that's, that's where cordyceps fits into all of this. Lion's mane, like you were talking about, mm-hmm. man, we can hardly keep lion's mane in stock. Everybody wants it. You know, it's like, a nootropic and, and people are like, Oh, you mean it'll actually help my memory and, and help my cognitive functions. I want it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, uh, and, and what it does is it stimulates, um, nerve growth factor, which is a protein that we make that, that helps to manage and organize and promote neuron growth and anything that can help us neurologically is, is probably a good thing, right? And, and especially as we get older, I mean, you know, my memory is absolutely not what it used to be. And, and you know, it, it gets, you know, I have friends who are like, you know, what, what was, and, you know, they go crazy because they're like, what was that? I was just thinking of it and it's gone. Mm. So, so now anybody and everybody wants, wants a lion's mane just because this whole idea of how can I enhance my cognition and that that too is where we didn't really talk about that that too is where people are microdosing with psilocybin mm-hmm. and and doing that and enhancing and, and you know I, I will say this i mean with lion's mane or these other mushrooms they're not things that we we actually are going to feel right away i mean normally with with medicinal mushrooms they're kind of sitting in the background it's not like we take them today and tomorrow our cold is gone or the flu is gone or something like that really not how they work um but you know with psilocybin you hit a certain threshold you know it's there (laughs) you know for sure Mm -hmm. Uh, and and maybe not with you know 100 milligrams or something like that of, of of the mushroom or something like that but boy, once you hit maybe 500 milligrams, yeah, you, you'll definitely feel it pretty quickly if you're eating the mushroom itself and, you know, consuming that and, and uh, you'll feel those effects because it's a very powerful, powerful molecule, um, mm-hmm. an alkaloid. So, but with most mushrooms, no, it, it will take a bit of time. And that's what I, I tell people. And because it's really important, people sometimes think, they have to feel something immediately to know that it's working. And it's like, no, it doesn't really work that way with most medicinal mushrooms. It's kind mm-hmm. of sitting back there supporting you and, and it's um, a potentiating your immune system, which means basically right. strengthening your immunity. And so that's really the, what we're talking about in general for most medicinal mushrooms is that strengthening of immunity. And it doesn't really matter whether it's reishi or cordyceps or lion's mane. They all have those beta glucans to give you that, but they each also have certain special characteristics like lion's mane with these uh, 
stimulation of nerve growth factor. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, in terms of medicines, especially mushrooms, that some of them they can have healing effects, but they're not psychoactive. So it's not like you'll be aware of any kind of feeling of what that mushroom is. But uh, mushrooms like psilocybin, even in very low doses, microdosing, as you were saying, you can feel it. And it also has a physiological effect um, as well. And that always fascinates mm-hmm. me is like, how can this plant that you take completely alter your consciousness in some like radically uh, fundamental way and then kind of teach you lessons and show you new information. I mean, it, it's pretty much a big mystery how that's even possible. And do you, do you subscribe to the idea that these, um, these plants have something like a spirit or that, there's some, that they're conscious or that there's some kind of connection between uh, mushrooms and humans? I know that's a popular theory going around. Well, you know what? I, I don't like to... Um... I don't like to look at it in that sense necessarily, because I think when we start to externalize these things um, and all of a sudden we're saying, oh, yeah, I'm now because because what's happening. I mean, they definitely will um, create a change in our physiology. They'll create a change. And, and you know, we tend to think about it in terms of the um, kind of like a mental change and visual and all of this, but actually what they're doing, especially if you take a, a very uh, powerful dose is they're actually to some degree lighting up every single cell in your body, mm. you know, and, and we can, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, we tend to think of it in terms of a uh, visual or visionary because uh, especially if you do it in a dark room, you close your eyes you start to see a lot of colorful visionary images and, and it could also be uh, a geometric patterns and things like this. Things kind of break down into, into what I would call uh, um, certain uh, um, uh, visual underlying patterns that, that I, I think are, are maybe um, kind of an underlying web uh, in this universe that we live in. Mm. Um, and, and so does that plant have a certain spirit that will then talk to us or are we just being, are we just basically talking to ourselves mm-hmm. and, and we're having this, this inner experience? Um, so, so I, I'm kind of like, I, I don't like to necessarily talk to it or think about it as a separate so, so to speak, because I think mm. once we're having this experience, it's a, you know, just like it will, it will demonstrate to us how we're connected to everything. Mm. And, and these, these things, whether it be LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca have these, these different, um, or, or let's say they have this one quality of, of connecting us and giving us that all of a sudden that, you know, light bulb goes off sort of like, oh my God. I am part of this. I am just, you know, this is a wholeness here. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I don't like to really think of things in terms of the separation. We are right now, you know, we're, we're in a paradigm where we have been, been actually um, programmed to think of everything as separate. Mm-hmm. You're separate. I'm separate. 
all of the things around us, the trees, everything else is all separate. I, I, I just think we have to kind of unlearn that. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, we are, we are a definitely a separate organism. We live and die alone, so to speak. But when you actually finally realize the connections, mm-hmm. you know, that's when you sort of transcend. Uh, just to give you an example, um, I, I'm here in Patagonia. I, I'm out wandering the countryside. Out here where I, I'm staying right now, there is a bush. On that bush has got all sorts of flowers. I'm out there sitting and I turn around and the flowers are just like, there's hundreds of big bumblebees on those flowers. I stand there for 10 or 15 minutes and I just look at what's going on and look at that and think, this is part of me. It's part of all of us. And it's just, I'm I'm trying, I'm not, thinking about me or them or anything. I'm just enjoying and I'm just being a part of this period, this time, this space right there. Bees on flowers in my consciousness. And that's really a part of it is coming to this point where you can, you can realize that we're all one big organism, hopefully, cooperating and, and and doing what we can to make our way through i mean i mean it's just like it's just like disease or illness i mean it's it's like being out of balance it's not you know there's always these organisms out there that can cause us illness but if we're in balance we seem to be able to navigate through all of that and that's really what we're doing is we're navigating through all this and i don't like metaphors out there that people use of we we're at war with this or we're at war mm. with that, or it's a battle. It's this and that. It's like, no, it's not. It's like, we're all cooperating in our own way. Mm. It's so true. And that's such a fundamentally different uh, perspective. And it's one that certainly the more entheogenic uh, fungi can help you learn because yes. they bring you into that place um, where in a lot of ways, it feels like more like yourself than you've ever been. Yes, uh, interestingly. absolutely. No, absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about enough, and that is that, that when you take a high enough dose, the space they take you to is ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that gets talked about a lot mm-hmm. when you start to dig into the use of these and to, the, the, uh, to Eleusis and to all of these mystery schools. They take you to a, a point where every cell in your body is in ecstasy and it's just dancing to a cosmic rhythm Hmm. and and, you know for me what i think is i think that may be the ultimate healing experience so Hmm. you know a lot of people may think oh yeah i'm going in and i'm going to see all these visions and all the rest is going to be great i'm going to feel good and all that well the ultimate healing experience is to be in that space where your cells are all lit up and they're in this ecstasy and what could be more healing than that? Right, exactly. And just the the perspective that that is possible makes you kind of reevaluate your whole life. If that's yes. like the first time you've you've done it, and you do have that ecstatic experience where you don't feel like yourself, you don't feel like you know Joe Smith anymore. That's you right. Feel like uh, you know just a part of the world. Uh, it changes you basically forever because it just kind of points to the fact that the consciousness that we normally live in, the kind of mundane, you know, 
observing, like I am here, that's there, that's that person, that that's just one kind of consciousness and it's not yeah. the whole of it. And that no. just opens like a whole literally can of worms um, <laughs> yeah, well, well, into see, like another very, place. Yeah, and that's very practical kind of consciousness. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I've been reading some of these reports now about the research that's coming out where they're giving people you know, psilocybin in controlled environments and mm -hmm. these people are coming out of it. And, and it's so interesting because they say, yeah, 40% uh, of the people coming out considered a life-changing experience. And, and, you know, and I just think, yeah, <laughs> I could have told you that all yeah. of my contemporaries back in the sixties could have told yeah. you that. Yeah. And the ancient people using that could have told you that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, that's absolutely right. So, so we're, we're rediscovering this and, and I think, you know, we have to be careful too, because what they're going to try to do is mm -hmm. they're going to try to push this all into a medical setting, which mm -hmm. is fine. You can use it there or a psychiatric setting where, yeah, it's going to be helpful to these people, but don't take it away from us uh, personally to be able to use this in our own way and don't take it away. Don't keep it illegal for us. That's, that's not, not a good thing at all. Don't try to just steal it and, and keep it here as, as a medicine. Um, mm -hmm. no, there's, there's other ways that we can. Right. And that's where it's it. kind of moving. Um, it's as you kind of implied it's both fortunate and unfortunate it's fortunate that it's moving towards more acceptability but it's unfortunate that it's in the terms of you know only certain licensed people can use it um and that so i, I wonder what's going to happen with that i'm actually really excited um at the abilities because there's quite a good amount of research coming out of the like beneficial effects of things like MDMA for PTSD and for psilocybin on all sorts of anxiety, depression disorders, and not even in crazy doses. Yeah. And, no, and even all the time, just one time. It's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable stuff. And addiction issues too. Mm -hmm. Very good for that. And end of life issues. I mean, that's the other thing that, that yeah. people mm -hmm. taking at people with terminal cancer and things like that changes their life. Right. They kind of see beyond the veil, so to speak, of like what yes. could possibly happen after death. And they're just suddenly not so worried about it anymore. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and you know what? I just think the important part for government is to lift the prohibition because all we really need is we need more people that can guide mm -hmm. us and, and help us uh, know how to utilize these plants mm -hmm. uh, because that was that was what was missing mm -hmm. back in the 60s and they they refused to allow it mm -hmm. to the point where you know we could bring in people that knew how to use it and they could train mm -hmm. people and they could educate people to how how we use it because mm -hmm. you know the fact is is that back then nobody really knew exactly what you were supposed to do with it other than i mean a lot of times it was just okay in the late evening you'd take it and and you'd You'd put some great music on. You listen to music. You'd kick back. You you wouldn't really go anywhere. But over time, you know, people would use it in so many different ways. Some of which were not were not positive in the sense that you know, if you're if you're relatively high, you don't want to be walking down the street. You don't want to be in certain situations. You want to be in a in an environment that is safe and comfortable 
and a place where you can get the, the fullness and the richness of the experience. Because mm, it is largely an internal experience. And if you're yes. in an area where, I don't know, if you're in the middle of public, you know, that's just a, that's a recipe for just like a terrible experience because, you know, well, it can the anxieties be. that come along. It's like you can't Absolutely. get away from it, right? Well, that's right. It, it's kind of like um, taking it uh, at home and, and there you are and you're sitting back and, you, and all of a sudden there's somebody knocking at the door. Oh yeah. And you just think it's the police naturally. Yeah, that's right. And then you just go in a whole loop and it turns out no one was actually knocking on the door at all. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. Because, because you know, you just go from, I don't know, did you, have you ever read the book by Aldous Huxley, heaven and hell? No, I haven't, but I've heard of Aldous Huxley and his work. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what he basically is Mm. talking about in this book. He says, look, you can take this and, and you could go to either place with this, Mm -hmm. You know, so you really have to be ready and you have to kind of be thinking about, okay, and and that's part of what's called set and setting, Mm -hmm. where you don't want to do this when you've got so many things on your mind that are just worrying you and stressing you. No, it's not going to help. And that's like a a perfect example of going straight to hell. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you need to be in a safe place. You need to be or maybe someone else is handling all those kind of things. It's quiet, it's comfortable. And then your uh, mind, your whatever it is, is just kind of, that's calmed out too. You don't have any of those, oh God, I've got to do something later on or this or that. No, it's all, you know, and and that's why some people go off to retreats to do this because they leave all that Mm -hmm. behind. and, And that's where having those, those groups can be, can be important, especially if you don't have, just like a group of friends that you can mm-hmm. do it together with. Um, that's where um, that all comes right. in. And, and so that, that's so very important. Heaven and hell is a perfect way to describe it because in a lot of experiences, you'll actually go through both and rapidly cycle throughout it. Yes. yes um, yeah, and that's, that's right. part of the healing of it because yes. you can't just have the bliss. You know, there's the whole uh, movement of positivity and everything, but what they yeah. kind of forgot because they didn't study adequate enough amount of Carl Jung is that there's a whole uh, shadow side to life. And the shadow side is just as important and meaningful as the light side. And those medicines will kind of bring you through a journey where it's like you choose where you go. And the more you resist, the more you'll actually go there. So yes. it's very helpful in that way. And one and thing about... Mm-hmm. Well, about, I was like, say that's so true. Yeah. yeah. So about the like about how it's becoming medicalized and used in a medical sphere, I think that runs the danger of missing out on how the ritual aspects of the experience are incredibly important for the healing. Uh, it's not. See, it's interesting from a, a Western perspective and a scientific perspective. It's being studied as like there's this chemical and it just like can heal PTSD. Whereas like the ancient traditions, they had that as part of it. They didn't obviously know about the chemical aspect, but if you do it in an overly medicalized setting, like imagine going to the doctor's office and he gives you like a psilocybin tab and yeah, you might have a great experience. You might feel kind of a little bit weird with the lighting and it's kind of like a weird setting to do it. Um, But I think you won't get as much as if you do it in a way that is in harmony with deep human values, deep natural values. Like uh, one of the biggest things is just being out in nature, just being out by trees in a forest. That's, that's the recipe for having a way deeper, way more meaningful experience. In fact, 
one of the common things that people experience when they uh, do do something like psilocybin or LSD is they immediately just want to go outside. Like they don't want to be in their house. And it's questionable whether we ever really do. And that feeling is just kind of like, you know, it's suppressed. But the second we're in that state, we're just like, got to be outside, got to be part of this world kind of thing. But I think that if somehow there could be a sweet spot reached where it could be used in a medical setting, like in a very kind of pharmaceutical type of way where it's like, you know, you have this safe room, you have this music, there's nice like scenery in the room and, you know, you have a guide to help you through and make sure like, you know, if you get, if you feel like you're having a heart attack, they'll like listen to your heart and be like, you're fine. Just kind of like as a way to help you out. Um, but also allow it to be used recreationally um, in legal terminology, like anyone could buy it over a certain age or something like that. Um, so that people could have their own personal journeys with it and not require, you know, another priest to, you know, get them through totally, the door. I totally agree. And, you know, this is too where, where, you know, there is the setting, the group setting, the larger group setting, you know, they used to have be-ins, uh, outdoor concerts, things like that, where people had felt safe enough to take these things and enjoy it, you know, and, and, and look, there's, there's a couple of different ways that you can, can approach it. One of which in the traditional way is late at night in a dark room. So there's no stimuli at all. And, and you take it and you're just, you just let yourself go and enter into this world. And there's no other stimuli there except you. The other, the other way, like you were just talking about, is to go out to a nice place um, in nature and to be in this beautiful environment, usually in the summertime, and, uh, and enjoying all of the, the trees, the plants, the animals, whatever it is, and feeling a part of, let's just call it Mother Nature. And so, so there are a couple, you know, and, and one of the other traditional ways of doing it too, is just like the native American church. They do it at night. They're in a, a, maybe a large teepee. They've got a fire in the center. People are around the outside and they are, they're taking it there. They've got somebody who's in charge of the door. They've got somebody who's in charge of the fire. They, they take the peyote gets passed around. They take what they need. As they go around and as the night uh, progresses, people will, will sing. There'll be different songs and things like this. So there are certain ritual settings that we can learn from mm -hmm. um, and are appropriate for certain people and certain people who may feel, you know, as comfortable as doing it with a friend or a lover or whatever in a natural setting or uh, late at night in their own home in a, in a safe place where there's absolutely no external stimuli. You don't mm -hmm. have a fire. You don't have anything else. You're just, <laughs> you're just you and the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The set and setting part is so important. Um, it's unspeakably important because these medicines, they don't really like do something to you. They kind of put your mind in a certain state where a lot of different things can happen. So like, depending on if you use these medicines at night, you know, you'll with eyes closed, laying in a room, um, 
you're way more likely to have all sorts of visions, all sorts of visionary experiences. And maybe there's, there might be a little bit more like negative, like fear associations. Cause I mean, we're hardwired to be afraid of the darkness. Um, <laughs> so like that will come out for some people. Uh, whereas if you do it outside nature during the day, it tends to be much more like blissful, much more like extroverted of an experience. Cause you'll feel like you're actually one with nature. Whereas when you're alone in the dark, like, it's very like introverted. You're like one with yourself and the universe, but they both bring you to the same place, but just through like a different mechanism. So setting yeah. something is super, super important for the well, yeah. good and bad and, experiences. And you know who, who actually was the one, the person that brought that concept to uh, us back then in the sixties was Timothy Leary. Mm-hmm. Timothy Leary, you know, Harvard professor, he and Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Dass, mm-hmm. were doing the first experiments with that. And they wrote some amazing books all about this. And he was promoting set and setting in a very major way. So that was definitely out there. And people were, anybody who was learning or had listened to him or whatever, was picking that up and doing their best to to utilize that information. Um so, so yeah, it, it's, it's very important. And, and, you know, if you, if you want to read some interesting books by classicists like Aldous Huxley, um, that, um, heaven and hell. And the other one that he wrote was called doors of perception mm-hmm. and doors of perception is another just fantastic. And, and he also wrote a book called Island, which was uh, published in 1962. It was his last book, and it was about a utopian society based around people that utilized mushrooms as a initiation mm. for young people. When they reached 18 or certain age, they would be initiated into the society using using mushrooms, and so. You know, he's got a number of books, which I highly recommend to people, you know, I mean, and they were very influential books back in the uh, back in the 60s. Very influential. I'll definitely have to check them out. And also uh, Jordan Wasson or Gordon Wasson. Gordon Wasson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll have to check him out. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, uh, um, The whole. um, Well, and, and you've already got some of his books. I mean, he's got so many books that he's written on the subject, you know, about you know, certainly uh, Eleusis, and there's a number of people that he worked with um, besides Albert Hofmann, but another classical Greek scholar named Karl Ruck that that mm. published a number of interesting books on, and I think even Karl Ruck, who initially was part of the whole um, Road to Eleusis book that Wasson and Hofmann published, Karl Ruck was the classical scholar that was part of that, where they brought forward their ergot theory. Karl Ruck is later on uh, changed his mind and, and he really now has written another book about mm. the fact that he believes it was mushroom that was the at the root and was the plant used for the initiations at Eleusis. Right, right. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to go to China to kind of learn more about mushrooms and produce there? Well, you know what, if you're looking for information about medicinal mushrooms, that's where it all is. And, and, you know, it's like, it's utilized in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, There is a little bit of history in the West with medicinal mushrooms, but it's not very strong. They didn't use very many mushrooms like in classical Western botanical medicine and things like that. So 
China was just definitely the place to go. That's where they were growing all of these other species. That's where, again, like I was telling you about all of the research institutes they had there. You know, the thing about having a population like that, I mean, it's just incredible. When you have that many people, you end up with that many more scientists in every single field. It is just amazing. And not only that, all of the small mushroom growers all over China. No, it was just, for me, it was, it was kind of a mecca in a way. And, and I, I was fortunate enough, too, to be over there early in 1989, my first trip. So I've seen the changes that have taken place in China. <laughs> when we travel to China today, we travel around the country in trains that are going 300 kilometers an hour. That's like 200 miles per hour. Wow. In in bullet trains that are comfortable and they just zip through the countryside and and they've got highways over there that are as good as anything we've got here. Their infrastructure is brand new. The everything is brand new over there. It's it's just a changed culture. And I've seen that from my first visit to till now. I've seen that transformation. It's been quite incredible. But but the fact that they have so many mushroom scientists there and they're doing so much work and the fact that here's a here's a, a factoid for you. China grows 85% of the world's mushrooms. Hmm. 85%. Jesus, 85%. that's most, most of, you, all of it. Can you imagine? 85%. They consume a lot, but they also oh. export a lot. It makes um, sense why you went there then. <laughs> that's the place to go. That's number one. That's, list. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, the farmers, you know, it's, it's like these people have generations and generations of working the land mm. and they are so organized and, and their mushroom crops are so such high quality and, and the crops that they get are, are, high yield I and mean, i mean it's just very very impressive and and they're, they're wonderful people mm-hmm. they are wonderful people i mean uh, i'm just so um happy and, and you know it's kind of funny because my orientation was always to mexico where the <laughs> this <laughs> the psychoactive mushrooms grew and this whole other culture was and i somehow ended up in China with medicinal mushrooms. Hmm. Do you know if the Chinese tradition has like these psychoactive entheogenic type mushroom use within it? Cause I haven't never heard of anything like that, but with them so uh, big on using mushrooms, you would think that that would be the case. They, they, they absolutely do have that tradition, but mm-hmm. it is, it is buried and, and um, no, no contemporary Chinese would probably know anything about it, but there's no question in my mind they they do. After all, I mean, Bogdan, how would anybody come up with the idea of the mushroom of immortality? Right. <laughs> right, exactly. It was those Taoists, I mean, 100% yeah. that were using it. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, really? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's just sort of like such a giveaway. Yeah. So you... Um, we're farming mushrooms for some period of time, and I believe you still are. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and kind of big things that you learned from, you know, mass farming of mushrooms? Maybe surprising things you learned? Well, well, I guess, you know, one of the things for me going to work on this very big mushroom farm early on was, was the, the level of machinery. You know, I'm, I'm 
and, and I started from the bottom and worked my way up to and probably did every job on the farm. And, and, you know, they have monstrous bucket loaders to, to move the compost around. We, we were actually in just one half of this farm. We were, we were actually producing um, 320 tons of compost every week. Wow. <laughs> so every room, you would have 80 tons of fresh compost. And the compost was essentially based around uh, um, breaking down straw. Because mm-hmm. that was the that was the cellulose component that the mushrooms were feeding on, so they would compost the straw down to a point where where it was just perfect uh, food mm-hmm. for the mushrooms that we were growing. But but think about that eighty tons in every house that we were filling, and we were doing four houses per week. So I was actually seeing two hundred different crops of mushrooms every year. Wow. Now, how many crops of anything does a farmer see in his lifetime? 60 crops, maybe, in a lifetime of what he's growing? I'm seeing yeah. 200 different crops of mushrooms. Now, now it's the same process, every crop, and we're trying to, to get everything as much the same as possible, but it's never the same. There's always little differences in every crop, and sometimes we're growing different varieties and things like that. And, and the seasons do have a bit of an effect, even though everything is indoors. So, so it's an, and this is an agriculture where, you know, there's no soil involved. (laughs) So it's like, Mm -hmm. you're not putting anything in the ground. We're using, we're using trays, we're using shelves. All of this is done in a, in a very organized, mechanized way. And, um, you know, for me, you know, again, it's just like, it's a very mechanized agricultural uh, um, method mm. of growing mushrooms there, but was, what was interesting is that is that I was working in the the brand new section of this farm. They still had uh, a part of this farm that the buildings were produced or or actually built in the 1930s, mm. and there it was like almost all of the of the different processes that you went through to produce this crop was done by hand. Whereas we had the whole mechanized system that we were dealing with, but the other system was done by hand. And, and that was where, you know, kind of like the minorities worked because they were the only people that would be willing to do it. I mean, most people at the mushroom farm were, were making compost mm. and, and this mushroom farm, you can smell it a mile away because the compost, I mean, a composting operation, there are lots of gases that are coming off of this because it's, it's, applied microbiology where who's doing our work are microbes all of these different microorganisms are breaking down the straw mm-hmm. and we're just feeding them and giving them the perfect environment to break the straw down mm-hmm. well there's a lot of lot of odor that comes off of that so most people are like oh mushroom farm my god it stinks i don't <laughs> want to be anywhere near that mm-hmm. place right and and, and exactly, uh, i yeah. built compost piles i i run run uh, machines through compost piles to turn them. I, you know, I, I was part of all of that. And, and um, I, I was fascinated actually, because again, it's applied microbiology. There's times when I'd be out there with a probe, probing into these piles at the center of these compost piles, it was 180 degrees. Mm. 
So, so this, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, it was yeah. just absolutely amazing. And on a scale that was, was huge scale compared to somebody growing in their garage. That's, that's really incredible. <laughs> and not only that, we were actually making the seed there too. We had a laboratory, uh-huh. a spawn laboratory where we're making the seed, the seed to grow mushrooms is actually live mycelium. Hmm. So, so we would sterilize grain. Mm-hmm. We would put my, live mycelium on it. It would grow out. And then mm-hmm. that grain, each grain had coated with mycelium. And you would, you would spread that out into your tray of compost. And mm-hmm. it would get turned in. And then every one of those, those grains would have mycelium. And it would start to grow out. And this is all through. And then you'd, that mycelium would colonize your compost in two weeks. Boom. Wow. wow. That's that must have been something something incredible to watch that. Oh, it was yeah because because essentially you know when you're filling four crops uh, a week, well remember it's a ninety day cycle. So that crop that you just filled in, okay, you the first week it's pasteurized. After the pasteurization, it comes out of that room, gets put onto the machine, and it is spawned. You put the spawn into it. Now it goes back into the room two weeks. Mycelium runs completely through this. After, at that point, we take it out, we put a layer of peat moss on top of it, back into the room. <laughs> mycelium grows up into that peat moss, and then we change the conditions, and all of a sudden, mushrooms start to small little, what we would call pinheads, start to cover <laughs> the complete top of that peat moss that we put on the compost. And next thing you know, within a week or so, those small little pinheads would grow into mature mushrooms and in come the harvesters mm. and they would harvest now that crop for about uh, 30 days, four different flushes until by the time the last flush came along, the yield was very, very low. First flush, very high. They would drop down to the last flush, very little, and maybe you'd start to get some disease in there. Boom, out oh. it goes. You're dumping it. And then you've got all these other crops behind it. So you've got a 90-day rotation. So they were uh, like harvesting the mushroom tops, but leaving the mycelium so that it would like regrow? Absolutely right. That's, yeah. So, that's, so that's once awesome. you harvested the first crop, the first group of mushrooms that came off, the beds would, would rest for about four or five days. And then you'd see new small little mushrooms, which wow. we call primordia or pinheads, start to grow up. And then they would start to grow up to maturity and the harvest would, would go in. And this would happen four times. And after the fourth time, the mm. yield was was low enough that you went, okay, we're not going to get any more. That gets Interesting. taken out. It's dumped. Maybe that's why the Chinese called it the uh, like mushrooms of immortality. Because in a way, like you just cut them off and they just come back to life. It's like you can't really kill them, especially if the mycelium is really deep. So they must have been like amazed by that fact. Well, you know, sure that's interesting. Part of it. Well, it's interesting too because you know when you think about it, um, mushrooms. Um, if you if the mycelium that's in the ground, if that network has food that's constantly being dropped down upon it it will stay in that same place. And you can go back to that same place every year and gather mushrooms from it. But think about the fact that uh, if you're in a big field, you ever seen a fairy ring? No. If you're in a field of grass Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes uh, a fertilizer or something will be put on this field and maybe it's got 
uh, spores or uh, a piece of mycelium or something, from that one spot, that mycelium will start to grow out in a radial mm. manner. You don't even know it's there until the fall comes along and on the outside perimeter, the, you will get mushrooms growing and that's called a fairy ring, hmm. you know? And so, so in nature, maybe in a pasture or something like that, you might actually see that. We can see it very well in like a, a soccer field or a baseball field because we've got just this field of perfect grass. And so then what happens is that, that you get the mushrooms in that, that leading edge, you harvest them, the next year comes around, the mycelium has continued to move outwards, and now you get a bigger circle of mushrooms. Mm. But what's happening is that as it's moving out, it's growing into new nutrients there, but what it's leaving behind the mycelium is leading behind. You're not getting any mushrooms because whatever it was that they were consuming is gone. There's nothing new that is being added to it to keep it alive. So the mycelium behind is dying off. So it's not wow. like mycelium is perennial. It's mm. only perennial as long as it gets fed. Mm. But if it, you know, it's like mycelium growing out. Oh yeah, this is great. This is great. Boom. You hit a wall somewhere and then it's go, oh, I can't go any further. And I just consumed everything that I've, I've grown over. So it stays there. And that may be your beautiful spot uh, of mushrooms. But then you go back there the third year and it's like, there's nothing. Mm. Well, that's because it's consumed everything in that area. Hmm. And it's no longer got a food source because some of those spots will have the food source for that year. But there's nothing that's that's coming back and and topping it up for the further years. And so that mycelium will just simply die. It's not there forever. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, the mycelial networks aspect of mushrooms are always something that just blows my mind how that's even possible. They seem kind of like almost like a community organism. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? You have to remember too that, that think about a forest. Think of all the roots, the tree mm, roots. Right. There's the I tree mean, my too. God, they're all grown together in this massive forest too. I mean, you know, there's there's speculation out there that mycelium is like oh the the earth's internet and all this kind of stuff and you know what the fact of the matter is is no it's not um, mm -hmm. I look at mycelium mushroom mycelium as being one very interesting wonderful part of the natural ecosystem out there mm -hmm. but it's out there with bacteria it's out there with uh, all sorts of other you know not just mushroom the what we think of as a mushroom mycelium but other fungal mycelium that doesn't produce mushrooms mm. that's in the soil that's also breaking down all the nutrients there are mm -hmm. bugs in there that are consuming and breaking down things so it's a whole community mm. it's a whole ecosystem so again this gets back to where you know there's this sort of meme out there of and you think oh yeah here it is this mycelium it's out there and and it's the only thing out there no it's just part of an ecosystem mm. and mm. so again for me i don't like to kind of separate it out as oh yeah it's there and it's the internet no not really <laughs> that's funny so for people who are um interested in using medicinal mushrooms or uh, cultivating their own uh, do you have any kind of uh, tips guidance resources for them that they can use 
Oh yeah, well, you know, I would I would highly recommend the book that I co-wrote back in 1983 mm -hmm. called The Mushroom Cultivator. That gives you really step-by-step -step instructions on how to, if you want to create a small little culture lab, um, how to prepare substrates in your backyard to where you can pasteurize straw and grow oyster mushrooms or or sterilize uh, sawdust and grow shiitake mushrooms and so it's a it's a great book um it's still i think i was telling you it still today sells 5000 copies it was published in 1983 so it's still a very useful book mm -hmm. and that's where you would really want to start i mean you can buy kits that will allow you to grow mushrooms but you know it's a pretty expensive way to grow a crop of mushrooms it's kind of fun mm -hmm. uh, for a gift or something like that but but and, and you know mushrooms are not easy it's not like planting a seed Mm. unfortunately it doesn't but rather than even doing your own lab spawn little spawn lab you can just buy a bag of spawn lots of companies in the u.s that sell a bag of spawn of lots of different species and then my book would tell you how to prepare straw um, how to prepare uh, woody substrates so that you could actually buy your spawn and then just go ahead and spawn the, the substrate Part of it is the easier part, and you don't really need to, you know, worry about culturing and sterile this or sterile that. I mean, the the, the most important thing you can have with growing mushrooms is a pressure cooker, actually, mm, because that's a sterilizer. Um, uh, but also, you can you can pasteurize things like straw with just a tank of water that you heat up to to let's just say 160 degrees or something mm. like that. So, is that because so, the bacteria gets in the way of the like fungi growth? Well, you've got not just bacteria, but you have mm. other fungi. Oh, competition. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like that's where when you're growing mushrooms, the whole thing we're trying to do is to create a, a food or what we call a substrate that is specific to the mushroom that we want to grow. And other fungi will go, mm, I don't like that too much. And I'm just going to be growing really, really slow or maybe not at all. Uh, same with bacteria. So once you get your species in there and colonizing it, it actually has its own sort of natural antibiotics and things like that to keep the other species from growing until later. They will come in later uh, once it has consumed the substrate to a certain point uh, because what's going on all the time is there's a succession of microorganisms that are consuming all of the, the organic matter out there. So one organism comes in, consumes what's good for it, and then it leaves behind partially consumed substrate that somebody else jumps on. Mm. So there's all these different microorganisms that are feasting on the organic matter and uh, who are collectively breaking it all down to where plants can use it. Mm. What are the mushrooms uh, feasting on? Like what are the nutrients that they're pulling out of these substrates? Well, I, I mean, I mean, basically when we're creating a, a for example, a mushroom compost, we're mm. looking at it in terms of proteins, carbohydrates, mm. um, certain uh, important minerals, uh, whether it be potassium or phosphate. Mm. Um, those are the things that we're doing because when we start out, what we actually do is we have a, a carbon nitrogen ratio that we mm -hmm. start out with. And then we compute out with a formula. Okay. How much protein, how much um, sort of sugars, carbohydrates do we need to add to this straw 
to actually allow for this compost to move forward. In other words, feeding the microorganisms. And what they really love is uh, sugars. Oh, mm. man. They just, you know, the, the uh, and these are mostly um, other fungi, but bacteria. So there's a whole uh, uh, different uh, set of microorganisms that are working on this compost to ultimately create this kind of perfect protein, um, carbohydrate, sugars type of uh, a compost for the mushroom to feed on. Hmm. And that, that's, you know, like with an agaricus compost, for example. With sawdust, if you're growing a wood decomposer, well, I mean, it's pretty easy if you just got a log. It's all in the log, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, in the log, it can have a certain amount of sugars and, and uh, cellulose. But it, with sawdust, if you're using sawdust, normally you would add some kind of carbohydrate to that that would be helpful for the mushroom to grow on that sawdust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a what a remarkable creature, really. I mean, uh, plants are fascinating, but mushrooms are just their whole own thing. So, um, thank you so much for uh, for for being on the show. I really appreciated the conversation. I learned so much. I'm gonna have to check out all these uh, people you recommended and really get up up to date on my um, my college, well, my well, you've, sacred you've, entheogens. You've, You've definitely been reading some some information about entheogens and and that whole world, so I can definitely tell that. So yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, there's so much out there to read. It's a, absolutely and personal very, experience is best. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, right. You've had some of those. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's been a pleasure, absolutely a pleasure pleasure to speak with you, uh, Bogdan. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, Jeff, and for uh, for our listeners. Uh, where can they kind of find you, contact you, and what kind of products do you really stand for that you guys make? I know you make a lot well, of uh, organic mushroom extracts. Yeah, you know what I would say is, is come to, to our website, namex.com, N-A-M-M-E-X.com. We have a lot of great information there. I mean, Namex is a, a business that sells to other businesses, but we do have a division called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com, and that's where we sell the retail products and that also realmushrooms.com also has a lot of great information on it as well so come and feast on the information and if you're looking for a mushroom supplement realmushrooms.com would have it okay excellent yeah i i will actually take you up on that one of these days absolutely Uh, i really appreciate your uh your in-depth knowledge and it was a wonderful conversation thank you thank you yeah it's been a great being here yes